arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. This episode is part one of a two-part interview with Jason Arkels, an American sculptor living and working in Florence, Italy. Jason, thank you so much for being on The Arthropologist. I don't remember how I stumbled onto your podcast, but I have been addicted ever since. In fact, if there's one criticism I would have of your channel is that it's very distracting. I keep binge listening instead of listening to other podcasts for research that I'm supposed to do for future shows. And I will literally, I have literally sat down and listened to say two and said, okay, you need to listen to something on opera or uh, voiceovers or somebody else that's going to be on your program. And I go, well, you know, let me listen to just one more. And before I know it, I've been through three or four. Uh, Bill, thank you. Thank you so much. That's, that's, a, that's a fantastic compliment. Uh, well, thanks, I, thanks I, I have. I've, I've, pro- I've listened, I think now, I've, I told you, uh, over 30. I listened to like three or four of, of your like 80, 81, 82, and I loved mm-hmm. them so much. I said, you know what? You keep referring back. I'm just going to go to the beginning and start. And I started at number one. And I think, I think now um, I'm, I'm uh, around 26, 27. Oh, um, wow. That's great. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love it. So, well, let's just Thank get you. right into it. You uh, tell sure. us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got started, why you're in Florence and uh, a, a little bit about your podcast. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, well, let me, let me start with the podcast because that answer is a lot quicker to get through than uh, how I arrived to Florence, which is a kind of an interesting story. But uh, um, basically, uh, well, I'll, I'll handle both at once. How about that? The podcast is basically something I wanted to do uh, for a long time, or at least something I actually wanted to listen to for a long time. Now, I, I started um, uh, uh, learning about uh, figurative sculpture at the age of 24, here in Florence, Italy, where I live. Uh, I'm an American, uh, uh, which should be painfully obvious. Um, but uh, I, I studied in, in, uh, in Florence and uh, spent several years here teaching as well after, after I got through my studies and, and decided to eventually make it my home. And I've been here for uh, 25 years now. Uh, but the podcast is something that I, I wish I had had when I was a beginning sculpture student. 25 years ago. Now, I had become a bit of a podcast addict, like a lot of sculptors I know, uh, and painters as well. Uh, Podcasts are great to listen to as you're doing something else, like carving marble, or casting and mold making, or even sweeping the floor. Uh, And so um, I had looked and looked for a podcast on figurative sculpture, and it just did not exist. And it's kind of a shock. You would think that people would want to talk about Michelangelo or Bernini or or so many of the other sculptors in, in figurative history, uh, sculpt- the history of figurative sculpture. Uh, and at a certain point, I realized that maybe I'm, I'm the guy that, that needs to actually do the podcast. And, and it became a bit of an obsession. I put out the first 35 episodes uh, within nine months of each other, from nine months of starting. And now I'm, 
I'm lucky if I get a half dozen episodes out a year just because I'm busy with other things, but um, it is a real labor of love. Um, uh, but yeah, me, how I, how I started, um, I had a bit of a circuitous route to sculpture. Um, I started out actually in, in theater, uh, doing just about everything you can do in theater. And this is going all the way back to high school, uh, starting acting in, in the local sort of drama clubs and high school, you know, sort of productions. And then doing uh, props and set design and sound design. I, I went to university for it for a couple of years before dropping out and joining a professional troupe in North Carolina, where I became uh, uh, more focused on writing and directing and then got into puppetry. Uh, and so I, I did sort of just about everything you could do in theater looking for my thing. You know, I, I, I never felt entirely comfortable in anything, but that's the great thing about sculpture or about theater. It's, it's kind of a gateway drug. There's something for everybody in it. You can do any, anything from makeup to, uh, you know, construction and, or wigs or, you know, props or uh, lighting design, sound design. Um, and so I was looking for my thing, thinking I was going to find it in theater. And uh, it wasn't until uh, I did several, I had written and directed several puppet shows um, that I was approached by someone who said, hey, listen, um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher uh, part-time at this crazy school in France. It's the best school in the world for puppeteers. I think you have the, you know, the qualifications to get in and it's an amazing school. And if you do that, you'll, you'll really, you know, um, sort of take your work to the next level. And so I spent a year applying, uh, you know, sort of working up an audition, learning French. And I go over to France uh, and I apply to get into this puppetry school. And I didn't get in. I failed the audition. And I wasn't satisfied, <laughs> obviously. Uh, and I didn't want to just return to what I had been doing before because I still felt unsatisfied. I hadn't really found my thing. I thought for a while puppetry might have been it. Um, uh, and so I decided uh, on a whim immediately after failing to get into the school while still in France that I was going to travel Europe as a street performer. Um, this is kind of a long story how I get to sculpture, but um, I uh, yeah met some some street performers in Paris who said, "Hey, you know, you're a puppeteer and." Uh, I know, I know some, some other street performers were going to put together a kind of a street circus of maybe a half dozen or eight different people. Why don't you join our little troupe and travel Europe performing in the streets? And I thought, oh, what a dream. I'll do it. Um, and, and so I did. I sort of threw away my return ticket and, and, um, and traveled around with uh, this sort of impromptu troupe for several months and failed miserably at it. I was, I was a terrible uh, street performer. Uh, street theater operates in an entirely different way than, than uh, theater that you're actually performing in a theater or performing for people who have gone out seeking theater or expecting to see theater rather than people who are on their way to the bank or to their job or to their house. Uh, and so um, very quickly I went from being this, you know, sort of this romantic idea of being a street performer in, in the streets of Paris to basically being a a bum, a homeless guy with a, with a hobby of puppetry. <laughs> um, so I traveled around with these guys all through France, down into the Riviera, into Nice. And when we got to Nice, uh, the troupe got together and said, okay, where are we gonna go, go to next? We're, we're coming into Italy, where are we gonna go to? 
And everyone said, oh, we got to go to, we got to go to Venice. Venice is going to be sort of Mecca for street performers, you know, all the theater that happens there and the Carnavale and that sort of thing. And one of our numbers spoke up and said, well, you know, I actually have a brother who goes to this crazy little art school in Florence. And so if we go to Florence, there's a good chance that we might be able to sleep indoors and take showers. And so we didn't go to Venice, we went to Florence. And uh, the um, crazy little art school that this guy's brother went to, we, uh, we took a quick little tour, walked in, and, it's, and within 10 minutes of, of me walking into this studio, uh, I had decided to absolutely change my life. And not just because I was failing miserably at what I was doing at the moment, although that certainly played a part, but I realized that what I was really meant to be was a sculptor. When I walked in and I saw the caliber of work being done uh, by even the first year students at this little art school. And when I say school, I'm using that term rather loosely. It's really a, a, um, an atelier. Uh, atelier is just the French word for, for, for studio. But today it implies a specific style of training whereby you have a master who takes in apprentices and pupils and teaches those people what the master knows, right? So it's not a real school. You don't get graded. There's no graduation. There's no accreditation of any sort, but you're learning skills from a professional master. And when I walked in and saw what the caliber of work that was being done there, I, I knew I, I had to at least uh, try. So in, in, in that 10 minutes, I changed my life. I figured out a way to stay in Florence, even though I had no money. Like I said, I was living on the street and had literally no money. So I started posing as a nude model at, uh, at this school. Uh, and within six months, worked my way up to um, <laughs> to being a teacher, <laughs> which sounds insane, but there's more to that story as well. But basically, uh, I should point out that all this happened in the mid-90s, right, before the internet. Nowadays, if you want to become a figurative sculptor, you can just Google it and find, you know, dozens of different places, you know, opportunities to learn to study. But in the 90s, there were, uh, well, first of all, there was no place to Google anything. You couldn't look these sorts of things up anywhere. It was all by word of mouth. The only people that ever uh, got into these uh, small little schools, um, you know, did so because they knew somebody just like I did. I stumbled into it. I felt, I, I still feel as though I, I really sort of won the lottery in terms of ending up, you know, just walking in the door of this uh, amazing uh art studio, this teaching studio. And, you know, at, at the time in the 90s, there were maybe, it was one of maybe a half dozen around the world or around, I should say, the United States and Europe that offered this sort of uh, traditional figurative uh, approach to art. Um, maybe I should explain a little bit about how I went from nude model to teacher in six months. Um, so when I arrived at this school, which is, by the way, uh, the Charles Cecil Studio. Charles Cecil is a, an American painter who has been living in Florence since the 70s. Um, he's been teaching here for over 40 years. Uh, and uh, at the time in 1996, when I, when I arrived and met Charles Cecil, there was no sculpture department. He, he was a painter. He only taught painting and drawing. Uh, but he had always wanted to have uh, a sculpture component to his teaching because what he taught 
was more than just a way to draw and to paint. It's actually a way to see. Uh, what is taught at Charles Cecil, first and foremost, is how to use your eyes as, as near an objective measuring tool as you possibly can to absorb visually the world around you and put it into your work. And there's actually a lot of science uh, behind it, you know, in terms of optics and geometry. It's a, it's a very rational approach, and it's an approach that really has its roots in the early Renaissance. And, and, uh, um, and it's not about the medium. It's not about whether you're working in clay or, or paint or, or pencil. It's about um, how you organize information visually, how you, you organize visual information, how you put it into your work. And so it, be, because of this, he wanted to see if he could um, develop a process uh, for sculpture based upon the process that he uses for painting and drawing. The process he uses, it's called sight size, the sight size method, the sight size technique. Um, and it's, it's, it's called the sight size method because basically you're, you're looking uh, at your work and at your model uh, in a certain spatial relationship, right? You're, so if your model is um, 10 feet across the room, maybe your easel is five feet across the room, right? So your easel where your, your, your painting is or even your clay is, is twice as near to you as the model. And if you produce a sculpture or a painting half the size of the model on that easel, uh, then it, from your point of observation, it will appear to be the same size, right? So, so obviously we know that things are larger in our field of vision the closer they are to us, right? So you can use that to scale up or scale down work. If you're a model 10 feet away and your sculpture is half life size, five feet away, visually they will appear the same size. And, and that's how you compare things. You don't, you don't compare things by... Um, doing anything other than putting them side by side in your field of vision, right? If you want to know, if you take two pencils and want to go which one's longer, you don't, you don't hold them at arm's length away from each other. You put them right next to each other, right? And so that's what visually you're doing in a sight size process. You're putting your model and your work visually right next to each other. And then you can use simple tools like plumb lines and rulers and compasses to visually gauge small, minute differences um, you use uh, mental and visual tricks that help uh, sort of train and sharpen your, your visual perception, things like mirrors, um, uh, which I can't really go into now just because of lack of time. But, uh, but anyway, there's this, this, this incredible body of technique that is centuries old that uh, has allowed uh, historically painters and sculptors to render fantastic work, um, visually accurate work, naturalistic work. And uh, anyway, long story short-ish, um, Charles wanted to see if sight size would work for sculpture. And there's tons, of, there's tons of evidence that it was actually used in the 19th century as a sculptural technique. Uh, but uh, Charles didn't really know how to institute this because he was not himself a sculptor. However, I come along and because of my experience in puppet making and prop making, I knew a lot about the technical aspects of sculpture, things like casting and mold making, how to handle clay, uh, what tools were necessary. Um, and, but I knew nothing about art, at least in terms of, of what uh, Charles was teaching. And so um, 
after several conversations, uh, I became the studio assistant's assistant um, to um, basically one of Charles's uh, sort of head pupils was really in charge of the sculpture department. Uh, and I was working under him. Uh, the guy I was working under knew everything about drawing and about the site size process, uh, but nothing about sculpture. And I was the other half of that coin. I knew things about casting mold making, but I didn't know anything about site size. And so we taught each other our skill sets. Um, but then three months after that, he had to leave the school. And, uh, and then I was sort of the de facto head of this experimental sculpture department. And my, my tenure as head of that sculpture department lasted 10 years. Um, so a pretty unusual, if not unique, uh, foray into learning how to sculpt, um, you know, sort of half teaching myself, half sort of making it up based on uh, evidence of uh, techniques from other, uh, other sources, you know, for painters and, 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 and draftsmen. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's long story short, that's how I ended up in Florence. And, and uh, I was here not for 10 years straight. I, I was here for you know, maybe three or four years. And then I decided, okay, I'm a big boy now. I'm going to go back to the States and open up a studio. And being there, it was difficult for me, I think, um, being in the United States as opposed to being in a place like Florence, Italy, where you live and breathe art. Um, you go back the States, and I found at least that I was a bit of an anomaly when I told people what I did, that I was an artist, that I was a sculptor. People would make assumptions about me. Um, you know, they figured I was probably just welding scrap metal together or, um, or just living, you know, calling myself a, an artist as a lifestyle choice uh, rather than being a working professional. Uh, and then they would see my work and they say, oh, you're a real artist, um, which, which hurt because it means the default assumption is that when everyone, you know, when, when anyone says in America that, that, oh, yes, I'm an artist, the other the person who's being told that thinks that they're full of crap, uh, you know, and that, oh, no, no, you're a real artist, you're legitimate, as opposed to what I assumed you were, because I met so many other people who are, you know, that way. And I'm, I'm not, and I'm not knocking people who weld scrap metal together. They're legitimate artists too. But, uh, but basically, I, 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 in the United States, I was the exception. In Florence, I'm the rule. You know, there are, I know a dozen uh, professional sculptors in Florence. Uh, I know more painters here in Florence. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a valid uh, career. Um, so at a certain point, you know, after I opened up a studio in, in, in uh, North Carolina in the late 90s, I, um, I always found an excuse to come back to Florence for three months a year, six months a year. And so I, I, I still sort of stayed the de facto head of the sculpture department. And I felt like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just, I'll just come back and make sure everything's running OK and blah, blah, blah. And I, I would try to stay as long as I could without having, actually having to get a visa. So you can travel as a tourist for three, you know, a total of six months a year. Um, but after, after several years of that, I realized I was, I was fooling myself that uh, I could live this sort of double life. I was, no, I was never really entirely happy uh, unless I was in Florence sculpting. So in, uh, ooh, I guess it wasn't until 2006 or so that I decided to uh, uh, make, it, make it official, make it permanent, and, uh, and move to Florence in a, in, a, in, a, in a permanent way. And I've been here ever since.
I appreciate that you, you know, have a, a master apprentice relationship. That's, that's how I learned to paint. I did have a degree, but I really didn't learn a whole lot technically from it. Uh, and I wound up hooking up with a, a guy who became my mentor and uh, we're still great friends, but, you know, he took me under his wing and did the same thing that you had, you know, just practical uh, teaching knowledge. And it wasn't a school. It was just him in his studio. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure uh, the ateliers are different, but, you know, the colleges, they're not, unless things have changed, they're not really putting out practical uh, students who can go and find work uh, sure. like the ateliers well, are. Well, it, it depends on what sort of work you're looking for. I think uh, I think um, uh, one issue with um, uh, today's art schools in terms of accredited art schools attached to university programs, that sort of thing. First and foremost, they're going to be looking at um, uh, in terms of like general strategy. You're going to be looking at the art market. They want to produce artists who are going to reflect well upon the college, right? So you got to produce uh, painters and sculptors or artists generally that will fit into what the current trends are, right? And if your current trends are conceptualist, postmodernist stuff, that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of stuff you, you know, there, there are no blue chip, uh, you know, hugely wealthy, famous traditional figurative artists these days, right? It's people like Damien Hirst, it's people uh, like Tracy Emin. And so the universities are, are the, the programs are looking to replicate their success because they are the, the, the most successful artists, uh, at least in terms of, um, you know, a, you know in, in terms of finances and in terms of uh, notoriety. We don't have superstars anymore in the figurative arts world. We, I mean, you know, maybe there's some names that, that we all know, but they're not household names. Um, and so I think, I think uh, universities, uh, more, much more so than ateliers, are beholden to uh, trends larger than just sort of uh, um, the relative cliques that we exist in, in terms of traditional figurative arts. So, and, and, this, and it's not to, you know, lay judgment on it. It's just, it, it's apples and oranges, really. Um, uh, ateliers uh, serve a, a purpose, but so do the, the, uh, the big art schools that sort of churn out art degrees. And it's a shame that uh, those, those university programs, uh, you know, um, are so successful because I think it leads a lot of people into, you know, spending years pursuing a, a relatively worthless degree as opposed to skill sets. Um, uh, but there you go. At least, at least everyone has the opportunity to find out about the atelier. Uh, sort right. of world and make that choice thanks to the right. internet. Um, I wanted to ask you about your uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that it is the most informative on art in general that I know of and definitely on sculpture. And so it made you. me wonder how much time are you spending uh, putting these shows together? Uh, I can... I, uh, okay, let me, let me, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the, the thing about, the great thing about art history is that they're not really making that much more of it. It's, all, you know, you know, 
they're, they're, they're not new discoveries that people are making every day about John Lorenzo Bernini, for instance. And so you can kind of get a, a handle on, on things pretty quickly. And, and, and my podcast focuses on the history of figurative sculpture uh, and the context in which it was produced, right? I don't, uh, for those of you who haven't listened to my podcast, I'm not just giving out names and dates, right? What I wanna do is paint a picture of the context uh, of the culture and society and the times that produced these artists that produced these works, why the sculpture was made, how the sculpture was made. Um, I, I try to make a podcast dedicated to figurative sculpture for figurative sculptors, right? So I wanna ask and answer hopefully the questions that, that sculptors have, not just a general audience sort of thing. So I, I, I go a little bit more in depth. Um, and so it, it takes, uh, I mean, you know, when I was in my prime, all of six years ago, uh, I was producing a podcast a week. But the thing is, I had a, I had a big head start on, on the production of the first 30 or so episodes because in 2013, I was asked by a cultural, a cultural association here in Florence to give a series of lectures. I was to give a series of nine lectures, one a month for nine months, about the history of figurative sculpture from whatever time period I wanted to start with to whatever time period I wanted to end with. And so I chose basically the dawn of the Renaissance to present day. And um, I didn't have a whole lot else going on in my life at the time in terms of work. It was a, it was a low point in my life. And so I had the, I mean, a low point in my career, not a low point in my life, but um, I, ha I had the opportunity to really dive deep into the study of uh, figurative art in the way that I hadn't before. Now, as a student of the ateliers, uh, the great thing about the atelier is that you have a very, very deep uh, dive into whatever your, your master is teaching you. However, that dive might not be very broad, right? So you might learn one thing very deeply, very well, but you don't learn a lot. So I didn't really learn a lot of art history uh, at Charles Cecil Studio beyond um, the lectures that Charles uh, gave and still gives every Thursday. Um, and he's a brilliant lecturer, and I, I really credit him with uh, my approach uh, to, to art history in general. Um, but um, I, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm getting off the, the topic. You just asked me, you know, how long does it produce a, a podcast? But I, I really would love to talk about um, sort of the genesis of the, of the podcast, how it came about. So... I mentioned this whole thing, this site size thing, and how I ran a, an experimental sculpture department and um, how there's evidence that it had been used in the past, site size had been used in the past as a technique. Well, I started to do some research. I wanted to find out, well, who was using this in the past and what is the evidence? And, and you know, why is the sculpture that, that I'm producing uh, and my students are producing, why does it look more like 19th century French sculpture than it does uh, to the sculpture that we're surrounded by in, in Renaissance Florence. Why doesn't our stuff look like the Renaissance? Why, why is it looking like photographs of, of work that I, that I have seen in the Louvre or in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris? And um, my research led me to uh, discover the sculptor, 19th century French sculptor, Francois Rude, R-U-D-E. He's known as the father of naturalism in sculpture. 
and uh, and it, and he is the progenitor for um, the site size technique in sculpture as I practice it. Right, he more or less invented an approach to sculpture that is almost entirely observational and that had been passed from master to pupil throughout the 19th century uh, and into the very early 20th century. And then after World War I, everything sort of collapsed in terms of, in terms of passing on you know, the knowledge. Um, and so the, the sculpture department at Charles Cecil is kind of a revitalization of, of those methods. Um, not that I knew that at the time. It's something I, I discovered later that, oh, Francois Rude, he was teaching his students a lot like how I am teaching my students based on what Charles Cecil taught me. So I, I was like, great, this is fantastic. No one's talking about this. I, I looked in all sorts of books. I couldn't find any reference, uh, specific reference or any sort of focused study on Francois Rude and his technique. And so I thought, this is the book I'm going to write. I'm going to I'm gonna study all I can and write this book on the technique of Francois Rude. And so I started, and this is like 2008. And uh, it was a couple months before I realized that I knew nothing about the history of art. And I was like, okay, I need, to, uh, I need to educate myself. I need to become an art historian before I can write this book because there are just a lot of missing pieces that I don't have. I might be talking about things, thinking I discovered you know, some sort of insight when in fact it might be common knowledge to art historians. And so I, um, I, uh, um, uh, I'm a self-taught art historian. I, I did a, just a tremendous amount of, of study on my own, uh, fairly rigorously. And that's what led to this, um, this lecture series. Um, and that was in 2013. So I did this lecture series and it was very, very popular. Uh, and um, after it was done and sort of even sort of during that nine month period, people would say, oh, Jason, you've got you've to record this in some way. You've got to do a YouTube channel. And I thought, well, I could do a YouTube channel, but no one's going to want to sit and watch me talk about figurative sculpture. But as a sculptor, I'd become a podcast addict by then. I was like, well, maybe this would work as a podcast. So why don't I... Um, why don't I try to do a podcast? And I sort of Googled how to do a podcast. And after about a week, I sort of had it figured out. And then I took those nine lectures that I had done over the course of nine months and I exploded them, right? Because I talked about the entire history of figurative sculpture in nine lectures. So obviously a lot of condensa uh, condensation of material. Uh, and so I was like, okay, well, I'll just take you know, each lecture and break it up into three or four or six different episodes because there's just so much more to say about this sort of thing. And so that's why the first 35 episodes came no problem because I'd already done all the footwork for it. And so I was able to produce a new podcast once a week, you know, for, you know, close to a year. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then after I got through all the easy stuff, then it's like, okay, well, I want to continue this. And so uh, I've continued my independent study and, uh, and I actually now work as a, an art historian. Uh, I'm on the history of art department for the British Institute of Florence here. Uh, and since, uh, since COVID has happened, I've uh, been giving uh, uh, lectures for various universities uh, in, in the United States as well, um, doing demonstrations of historical techniques or talking about uh, historical technique, really. Uh, it's one of my big, my big interests. That is awesome. Uh while you're talking, I'm sitting here scrolling through my questions, just deleting them because you're just going right along with questions. Uh, yeah. I had 
Well, uh, like like I said, the, your problem isn't going to get me to talk. Your problem is going to get me to shut up. Uh, well, hey, it uh, all this is free, so uh, <laughs> we can stay as long as we want. Um, Great. The I'm kind of going to jump around a little bit just to piggyback on some of the stuff you were saying. In episode six, you talk about Michelangelo, and uh, I will say that I learned more about Michelangelo from your podcast than I've learned in all the years that uh, I've, I've studied. And, you know, I would uh, pick up things that um, you I've never heard. Like, are you, were you making a joke or were you serious when you said that one year, the only work Michelangelo could get was doing a snowman? Was, is that no, that is just, that is historical truth. That's what I thought. Uh, Please talk about that. Oh boy, put me on the spot. Okay, it was um, it was the year fourteen ninety four, I think, maybe fourteen ninety three, um, or fourteen ninety five, some somewhere in the fourteen nineties. So uh, uh, Michelangelo, the teenage Michelangelo, uh, had uh, sort of found a place at the seat of the great Lorenzo the Magnificent, Lorenzo de Medici, uh, sort of living in his you know uh, court. Uh, being taught by the, the Neoplatonic scholars around him uh, and learning basically to become Michelangelo. Unfortunately, he died, I think, in 1492. His son took over, uh, Piero. I think it's the one who's known as Piero the Gauti, Piero uh, Medici. And he, um, Piero had no interest in art, very little interest in art. But Michelangelo was still nominally attached to the court of of, uh, of the, the House of Medici. And uh, they didn't really give, Piero didn't give him, give him anything to do. Uh, he um, uh, was sort of studying on his own. The Medici household had a garden uh, that was filled with, you know, antique statuary and fragments and that sort of thing. And, and they encouraged the, the brightest pupils of all the, um, of all the craftsmen of Florence uh, to come and, and sort of join and, and, and be a part of this sort of de facto atelier uh, in the Medici house. Um, uh, so at the time, you know, the young teenage uh, Michelangelo was apprenticed to the fresco painter, Domenico Ghirlandaio. Uh, and so during this time, during a, a, a couple of years before the Medici were actually exiled from Florence temporarily, uh, there was nothing for Michelangelo to do in the in the in that court until there was this freak uh, snowstorm uh, that occurred. And again, I can't remember exactly the date. Somewhere in the early 1490s, definitely after 1492, uh, but before 1496, I'll say that. And um, and so yeah, it doesn't snow much in Florence. Uh, and when it snows to the point where you're you're able to make a snowman out of it, um, that's a yeah, you know, that's a notable snowstorm, maybe once in a decade uh, or, or greater. And uh, yeah, and so Piero uh, de' Medici asked Michelangelo, hey, uh, come make us a snowman. And uh, I think he did a statue of Hercules, actually. He also carved a marble statue of Hercules around the same time. So he might have used that as his model. I'm not sure. That statue of Hercules is actually lost. It was sent to France and, and destroyed or lost a couple centuries ago. So we don't have that. Um, but yeah, he did a, he did a, like a nine foot tall statue of Hercules in snow. That, so the story goes. That is amazing. And one of the things that I have really loved about all of your uh, 
podcasts that I've listened to so far is how you concentrate on uh, one demythologizing a lot of the um, uh, artists. Uh, most of my students tend to be uh, older, but you know, if I'm working with a college student and, and they say they want to be serious about being an artist and I've been a professional artist, that's how I've made a living for over 30 years. And I just tell them, do you want to be an artist or do you want to be a tortured soul? Now, being a tortured soul is more romantic and, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to have any skills or anything, but if you want to be an artist, then it's a job just like any other. And uh, as we go through and talk about a few of the episodes, uh, I, I appreciated how you pointed out that Michelangelo, he was a fantastic businessman and an incredible marketer. And that um, if, I, if the name skips me, you'll have to help me. But his, the uh, biographer to the Renaissance artist. Um, uh, Giorgio Vasari. Giorgio Vasari. That actually he was really kind of guiding Vasari on how he wanted to be depicted and building his own mythos. Yeah, um, well, actually, yeah, actually, Giorgio Vasari wrote the first uh, biography of Michelangelo in 1550, along with a whole collection, he did a whole, a whole compendium of artist biographies uh, called uh, The Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects. Uh, and it's great because Giorgio Vasari was a contemporary and an associate and a, and a friend of Michelangelo. And so he was able to, to actually interview Michelangelo himself for his biography, which is amazing. And, and yeah, in the biography, Vasari refers to Michelangelo as Il Divino. He had become known as the divine one, you know, decades before um, for the Sistine ceiling. And, um, but the thing is, uh, it wasn't laudatory enough for Michelangelo. He, you know, even though Vasari basically called him the greatest artist ever, he was like, well, that's just not quite good enough. And so Michelangelo, just a few years later, commissioned one of his former apprentices uh, by the name of Ascanio Condivi to write another biography of Michelangelo. So we have two extant biographies of Michelangelo written during his lifetime, one based on interviews from Michelangelo, the other one more or less dictated to his former apprentice, Ascanio Condivi. And he's like, okay, Ascanio, here's what I want you to say. And this is where we get the mythology of Michelangelo because a lot of the sort of, um, yeah, urban legends that we have from Michelangelo actually arise from Michelangelo himself. He had no idea that we would be able to fact check him, you know, centuries on. Uh, not that he was like an outrageous liar, like, you know, like Benvenuto Cellini or anything, but, you know, he would go on about how, yes, he was born under a, a, a very auspicious uh, um, sign of the Zodiac and he was destined for greatness and, um, and all this sort of thing. And he really sort of built himself up. Oh, he came from a very ancient and noble family, all of which is not true. Um, but what's really interesting about that biography is what Michelangelo purposefully decided not to say. So not only did Michelangelo sort of tout up, you know, as much as he could, anything he could, but he also refused to talk about or had omitted uh, different things that could be um, uh, sort of less than favorable to Michelangelo. You know, like he, does, he never talks about his, his greatest failure as a sculptor. And that was the creation of the Bacchus for Cardinal Riario in Rome. 
Um, it's a great sculpture, but it wasn't. It was. It was not what the the client wanted. And the client never put it on display like he wanted to. And Michelangelo went out of his way to make sure that his biography stated that he never, in fact, worked for this man at all. When in fact we have the sculpture here in Florence, we have we have the 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 records, the deed of sale, the the, the payments to Michelangelo. We know he made this sculpture, but he refused to acknowledge it in his biography because it didn't cast him in the most favorable light. Not only that, we don't even know. This is crazy. We don't know who taught Michelangelo how to carve marble. You know, he was actually asked by Vasari. And, uh, and Michelangelo responds, oh, Giorgio, well, if I have anything of the good within me, it's only because I, I sucked in the, the stone carver's hammer and chisel through my wet nurse's milk because he had been raised, his, his mother died uh, young and he was raised by a family of stone cutters in the outskirts of Florence. Um, although his mother died when he was six, so he was not still nursing. So just anyways, it was just, it was just BS, obviously, you know, and uh, he, he didn't want to tell anyone who taught him how to sculpt. He'd rather let people think that he was just born great. Uh, so it's really interesting. And I, yeah, I, I do like to take not just Michelangelo, but anyone sort of off the pedestal if, if you know, because it's so easy to to look at people like Michelangelo or Rodin is, is another one and say, oh my gosh, these guys are unattainable geniuses. They're something other than human practically, right? No one could be like the old masters, like Da Vinci or Raphael or, or Michelangelo. And it's just not true. They were, they were just guys. They're, they're a product of their time and place. And well, there are okay. reasons they got famous and, 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 you know, good, but, uh, and I, yeah, I, I wanted to point out that the uh, sort of the myth of the starving artist, and you may agree or disagree with this, but the myth of the starving artist really, in many ways, started in the 19th century, ironically, yes. with yeah. the, uh, the, I think it was Theophile Gautier, I think he was a writer, but he was yeah. one of the first people to dress weird and kind of act as a weird artist and and it was then the art the the lifestyle of the artist became what was important about the artist as opposed to the work itself and so yeah. being anti-establishment anti uh making money uh that was what became popular and the in reality throughout history the people that we celebrate in museums today are the same they were famous back then it wasn't that you had to die to become famous again that's no. a modern myth the people that we laud as geniuses now were lauded as geniuses then and the most successful um i'm just again looking at my notes i think of all my heroes jim bologna is one of the greatest because uh, yes. what a genius marketing um, doing, realizing doing multiple statues in bronze using assistance is going to cut down time and create um, just a, a wonderful market that I think you said his family actually continued to live off of. Or is that true? Didn't, didn't uh, or was I that something else? No, I, I don't know if his family continued, but the but the tradition. So basically, yeah. Um, John Bologna started uh, or sort of instituted the idea of a, of a more industrial output and speculative output, because before him, mostly, if you were a sculptor, 
you would take in commissions. You know, a priest would come to you and say, I need a crucifix for my church. And then you do the crucifix and you'd wait for the next commission. Um, you, didn't, you, didn't have, you didn't have art galleries, you didn't have exhibitions, and you didn't make work really on spec in terms of, I'm going to make a nice figure and put it out for sale and hopefully someone will buy it. Uh, John Bologna changed all that, or he was just the right person at the right time. Because what really happened was the, um, the, the Medici that we were talking about earlier, you know, with uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent, his um, grandson uh, became the, uh, the first Grand Duke of Tuscany, Cosimo I. And, um, and Cosimo I would use art because by that point, Florence had become famous throughout Europe as the city of art. You know, it was the Renaissance after all. Um, and so, so uh, the Medici family would export symbols of power and influence by gifting small bronze statuettes to visiting dignitaries or, you know, if the, you know, the, you know, someone in Austria is getting married, they'd send them a gift of a small sculpture. And this was, this was a unique thing. You didn't, you know, no one was producing these sorts of things elsewhere, certainly not, you know, in a manner so, so casual as to be able to just give one as a gift. So it was a new, a, a new way of art. Uh, and then, so that was a new market, the way that the uh, Grand Dukes of Tuscany used art as propaganda was kind of new and had only been really the province of church, uh, the church using art as propaganda. Um, and, and so, so part of it was just uh, John Bologna being around at the right time to capitalize on that. And he became the, the official court sculptor of the Medici family. And when he died, his assistant, uh, one in which, of which he had many, um, Pietro Taka, inherited the uh, sculpture studio, which John Bologna ran that produced all these bronzetti. And so, so now Pietro Taka was producing uh, these bronzetti for the same purpose of, uh, you know, gifting and, and uh, export. And so it's, it's, so it's interesting. Yeah, John Bologna's style became the first truly European style of sculpture because you could be, you know, in some backwater like the UK or, you know, back then it was just England. Um, and suddenly your, your king had a couple statues all the way from, you know, Florence, Italy, the cradle of the Renaissance. And, and you could copy that, you know, you could, you could, you could, you could use that as a guide for your style. Uh, and, and, and this is how John Bologna's uh, personal style became the first European style of sculpture. Um, and I know I've gotten off the track. I can't even remember what no. we're talking about anymore. Sorry. That's fine. That's fine. Um, just train of thought here. Just just a stream of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I've you know again. I'm just picking out different episodes that I've listened to, uh, mm -hmm. and I wanted to tell you how much I appreciated your your love of 19th century artists. Um, mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm an illustrator, so I love illustrators, but very much. Uh, 19th century artists are some of my all-time favorites. Obscure names that they're actually getting more press now, but were forgotten for so long, like uh, William Adolfo Bouguereau and Alma Tadema, J.W. Waterhouse. And uh, I had forgotten that Frederick Lord Layton sculpted. You know, I love his paintings and I've got a book of his work, but, you know, yeah. you mentioned Layton and I went back. It's like, oh yeah, I love those paintings. or I love those sculptures. And uh, the sluggard, the yawn. Sort of yes, thing. Yeah. yes. Athlete uh, wrestling a python. Yeah. 
But one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, your thoughts. I, I think that 19th century sculptors and, and or, or artists in general, that their work is so powerful emotionally and their skills are so, they're just virtuosos of skill that they've been attached to so many products like uh, because they, they just are so good and so moving. For instance, Alphonse Mucha. I don't sure. think there's a bath product that hasn't had a Mucha uh, poster on it. Well, mm. you combine that with, especially now thinking about sculpture, hood ornaments, um, yeah. uh, lampstands, bookends. And it, it sort of in the modern mind reduces them to sort of kitsch and sort of kind of vulgar and commonplace. But there's a reason why those images were grasped a hold of and used for things like the Bugatti uh, uh, hood ornaments and stuff is they're just such powerful images, but they've sort of reduced them to, again, just sort of kitsch for us. And that's just such a shame because it, it does take away from how magnificent they are. Do you agree with that or have more thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the... <sighs> I don't know if people go as far as to call, you know, like the, I mean, well, Bouguereau has been accused of being kitsch. Absolutely. Uh, Waterhouse, I'd be a little, you know, less, less, uh, I'd be a little bit more reticent to call his work kitsch. Um, well, the, the, I think um, a lot of it has to do with um, the desire to always uh, have the current generation producing better uh, or at least different than what the last generation did. And, um, and it's not like we reached our apex in the 19th century with, uh, you know, romanticism or art deco or art nouveau. Um, and then, uh, you know, basically uh, after World War One there was such a seismic shift in the, um, the needs uh, that uh, art was meant to fulfill that the old art just couldn't work anymore. We needed something to talk about um, the mechanized horror of World War I and academic figures in Contraposto weren't gonna do it. And so modernism, which had, you know, you know capital M modernism, uh, had already, you know, begun to, you know, sort of uh, make itself known and abstraction and that sort of thing. And people grabbed onto it after World War One and thought, okay, maybe this this is the way forward for art. Um, the problem is, is that you have to uh, you have to justify your work and 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 explain or demonstrate or otherwise convince other people that this is a progression. That this that what you're doing now serves a purpose that art before wasn't serving. You're doing something in a way that is better and different, right? Um, but it was such a drastic change. Uh, just as World War I was such a drastic change from all other, all other military conflicts in history preceding it, um, that there, I think there was a general sense that there was no going back. Um, and so if, if there's no going back, then that means we have to, you know, 
you know, leave aside our childish things. And so, so Bukaro is now kitsch and, and, uh, and even Rodin is old fashioned. You know, Rodin was actually completely out of favor until the 1950s uh, and only came back into favor, uh, you know, for, for economic reasons. Um, uh, but I won't go into that. But uh, um, so the idea that uh, um, this, this stuff is now perceived as kitsch, I think enough time has passed where I don't think uh, current generations uh will take that natural assumption you know throughout the 20th century we were told that uh you know so, and society collectively agreed that modernism and then postmodernism conceptualism is the way forward that we're, we're we're working sort of light years above what any other artists in the past could have possibly imagined um and i think we're seeing that for for what it is it's not necessarily a lie it's maybe a, a Bit of wishful thinking on, on some people's parts, but it's, it's just a different approach. And like any path, it has an end. Uh, so I think I think um, the younger generations are much more open to uh, the figurative art of the past than they are to the conceptual art of the past, because at least the figurative art is is um, it's relatable, it's understandable. We can recognize what we're looking at. We don't need to read a book to have it explained to us. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, I, I like hearing that. Yeah. So, you know, everything is in cycles. You know, I mean, uh, you know, imagine, imagine uh, someone in fifth century Rome, sixth century Rome, seventh century Rome, looking at, you know, the art of just a few centuries before going, wow, the Greeks and the Romans. And now what are we doing? Romanesque? What is this? What is this Christian art crap, you know, with the gaunt little figures on sticks, you know, uh, and, you know, not to denigrate any any sort of thing. But but when when things change, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll come around again. Right. And so the greatness of the Greeks came back. You know, the Renaissance, of course, means Rebirth, rebirth of what? Rebirth of the Greek traditions, uh, rebirth of Greek culture, rebirth of, of Greek knowledge, and and uh, that includes the the approach to art. Um, and so, um, in a way, uh, I'm very happy to have been born in the late 20th century, ish, <laughs> late ish 20th century, um, rather than the early 20th century frankly, because um, I feel like things are getting better. The pendulum is swinging back towards art that is relatable on a human level, uh, as opposed to more abstract stuff. Um, you know, um, ab abstract art really spoke to the people of its time, though. You know, uh, the, the 20th century was full of horror and mechanization, and, uh, and, and that succinctly, succinctly sums up what the art of the 20th century was is it's horrible and mechanized um, and art is always a mirror of its time that concludes part one part two is on the next episode if you enjoyed this episode of the arthropologist there are more episodes on youtube to see my work you can visit my website billwilsonstudio.com where i have my books prints and originals for sale I'm a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Anthropologist.